in um, Exodus again, chapter 13. And last week we just had communion. We talked about the Passover and Jesus being the whole point of it. And the new covenant, when he celebrated the Passover, he changed the meaning from remembering Egypt to remembering what he has done for us and delivering us from the bondage of sin, not out of Egypt. Of course, Egypt is a picture of the world and we're delivered from that. So let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into Exodus chapter 13. Lord, we just thank you for, again for your truth that just pops out of your word, Lord. There's so much we can learn as we go through what you do. They're so full of examples um, and types, and they're all written there for our learning so we can gain wisdom and we can learn lessons from other people who have gone before us. So help us to glean from their wisdom and from their mistakes. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So how long do you think it would take to get from Egypt to the promised land if you just went straight there? Walking. About 10 days, as the crow flies. So um, if they walked straight to the promised land, it would be like 10 days walking. So it was God's intent that his people spend a full year getting there, stopping at seven specific campsites and learning seven important lessons on the way. So we're going to learn about some of those lessons today. So they're out of Egypt now. They're at Succoth, tent city. Why do they need to learn lessons? Why can't they just jump straight into the promised land? Well, it's one thing for God to get his people out of Egypt and quite another to get Egypt out of his people. George Morrison said, it took one night to take Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. (laughs) And 40 years later, Moses would remind the new generation, He, the Lord, brought you out of Egypt. Why? To bring you in, to give you the land as an inheritance. So the same thing can be said for us of the redemption that we have in Christ. God brought us out of bondage that he might bring us into blessing. A.W. Tozer used to remind us that we are saved to as well as saved from. So the person who trusts Jesus Christ is born again into the family of God, but that's just the beginning of an exciting new adventure that should lead to growth and conquest. So Egypt is a picture of the world, and when we are saved, the Lord took us out of the world, and now he's in the process of taking the world out of us. It's called sanctification, becoming more like Christ. He is not only preparing a place for us in heaven, but he's also preparing us for the place. This is really important because if we fail to understand what God is doing, life will be constantly confusing and depressing as we wonder, what is this about? Why is that taking place? What on earth is going on? We can find ourselves discouraged, disorientated and defeated unless I understand that life, this life, is meant to prepare me for heaven, for the next life. So after stopping at Succoth, which is um, chapter 12, verse 37, which means tent town, it's a picture that this world is not our home. The children of Israel were headed for campsite number two. But before they packed up, God had something he wanted to tell them. So let's look at chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So he's going to talk a lot about the firstborn. 
Every firstborn is to be sanctified, consecrated, set apart for me, God declared. Why? Well, when the Israelites left Egypt, they left behind a nation in agony, mourning the deaths of their firstborn sons. Therefore, in commanding the Israelites to sanctify their firstborn, God was in effect saying, To help you remember you are my firstborn, I am commanding that your firstborn be dedicated to me. So God's intent was that the firstborn son in every family would be in the priesthood, involved in ministry. That's what some people believe. But the problem was, the people of Israel fell prey to idolatry and the golden calf and all that kind of stuff. And only one tribe responded to the Lord's call to rectify the situation, and that was the tribe of Levi. So you could say it was all part of God's plan that Levi would be the priestly tribe, but it worked out in a practical sense too. And so God chose the tribe of Levi to be the priest. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because... So notice that verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying... So all these little rituals that God is setting up are all to remind the people of what he has done and his power, his faithfulness, and what he's done for them, his grace, his love. This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And we should also be remembering what God did for us when he brought us out of the world, out of the bondage of sin. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So the Israelites were not only to remember that they were God's firstborn, but they were to remember that the day he delivered them. They were to celebrate Passover annually in order that they would be able to provide a tangible way that their children could understand what God did for his people in bringing them out of Egypt. So today we have you know Christmas and Easter, and I know they're not Christian festivals or you know biblical things as such, but we can use them as a tangible way to teach our kids about what God has done, about gifts, about Jesus being the greatest gift, and things like that. So look for ways in your home where you can do things, and when your kids ask why you're doing them, you can explain that I'm doing this because, and you can explain about Jesus and whatever aspect of Christianity you're talking about. Verse 11, And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, then you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens a womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. 
But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of men among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By the strength of hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, it would be an interesting exercise if you photocopied this page out of your Bible and underlined how many times it says, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Over and over again. I think God's trying to tell us something here, that we need to remember that we don't belong in the world anymore. We belong with him. So this donkey is an interesting animal. Why does God, in this section here, as they're coming out of Succoth and he's giving these instructions about reminding them, why has he put this thing about a donkey? Well, a donkey is an interesting animal. Practically, it's a working animal, so they had donkeys. But why not a horse? Why not you know, other, a bullock or something like that? So the only way a donkey could live was if a lamb was slain for it. And so I'm going to use this analogy to speak of us as being like the donkey. Okay? Because we know that the lamb speaks of Jesus, it's not too difficult to figure out the donkey is us. Okay? The donkey is mentioned 25 times in the Old Testament, and these are some of the following references. I'm just going to go through some. So you get the picture of this donkey. All right? In Genesis 22, when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah, a donkey was saddled for them which speaks of a loss of liberty. Okay, The donkey was not free. It was under bondage. Later in the same chapter, the donkey was to be tied up while Abraham and Isaac ascended the mountain to worship. So the donkey was unable to worship. It was tied up in bondage, unable to worship. Jacob, in Genesis 49, when he's blessing his sons, he likens Issachar to a donkey that is heavily laden. In Deuteronomy 22, you read that the ox and the donkey were not to plough together, and the implication is that the donkey would slow the ox down. In 1 Samuel 9, we see Saul trying to locate his father's donkeys that had wandered away. Jeremiah 22 speaks of a donkey left for dead and tossed outside the city gates. So, you put all those references together about donkeys, it's not really positive. It's laden down, tied up, lacking an ability to serve or worship the Lord, lost, left for dead, tossed out. So it's not a very flattering picture. But the final mention of a donkey in the Old Testament is a glorious one. Do you know where that comes from? Yes, that's it. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. So, a week before he would go to Calvary, die on the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, Go into the village and you'll see a donkey. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks why you are untying it, tell him the Lord has need of it. Matthew 
So who does Jesus use? Donkeys. I choose a donkey. Let Alexander the Great ride on the back of his mighty black stallion. Let the Romans ride their dazzling white horses. I'll use a donkey. So Jesus wants to use us to enter our cities, our workplaces, our families, and he chooses us as a means of doing that. And we say, well, how can he use me? Who am I? Well, I'm nothing but a donkey. Well, that's true. But that's right. He loves using donkeys. He loves using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But before he can use you, you first must be untied or released because you can't be used if you're bound up with guilt and sin and worry. So he sends disciples to untie you. Notice that. He sent the disciples to untie the donkey. So before the donkey was ridden, he was released. He had to be redeemed. He had to redeem the donkey with the lamb. The donkey would die unless the lamb died in his place. And that's exactly what the lamb of God did when he died for us. So there's an interesting picture of the donkey. So you can think about that later. Verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So, God is guiding and God has a reason for taking us in the path that he chooses to take us. Isn't that cool? We don't know why God takes us and why we do, but here God actually tells Moses his reasoning. So for us it seems like we're on the merry-go-round. It seems we're taking this circular route. Why don't you just take me straight to the promised land? You know, I know what your will is for me, Lord. Why can't I just go and do it? Then God says, because I see things you don't. I know things you can't know. If I took you in the way you think you should go, it would be disastrous for you. Trust me, I'm preparing you for the land as well as preparing the land for you. Now, these wilderness experiences where we go through the hard times and the difficult times in life, I've got a quote from Chuck Smith. We need to understand that there was a legitimate wilderness experience for the children of Israel going out of the bondage of Egypt, before they could come into the full, rich land of promise, there was a wilderness to pass through, a desert. This is not just shrubs and trees, this is a desert, okay? Where they were to learn so many aspects of the nature and character of God. But there was also the 38-year, or 39-year, illegitimate wilderness experience. In other words, they should have passed through the wilderness in just a few weeks, but because of their failure to enter into the land of promise, when they came to it, God said, all right, you'll roam in this wilderness until this whole generation passes away. And they roamed for 40 years in the wilderness, which was an illegitimate wilderness experience or an unnecessary wilderness experience. And he continues, there are too many Christians who are in illegitimate or unnecessary wilderness experiences. They never get out of it. The whole Christian life is spent as a yo-yo, just going up and down, sometimes excited and thrilled about the things of the Lord, and then cold and indifferent, and then excited and then cold. And we have too many yo-yo Christians. End of quote. This first wilderness experience they're going through is to teach them about the character of God, is to teach them about who God is, and to teach them to trust God. We'll see that as we go along. And not just to trust, but also to praise and to worship. All right, verse 18. So God led the people 
around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So it wasn't just a, what do you call it, just a rabble. It was orderly ranks, must have been tribe by tribe. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So when Joseph was dying years and years ago, he said, I know, as God's people, you will make it to the promised land. Therefore, don't leave me here in Egypt. Although I live here, worked here, and will die here, I'm not of Egypt, so take me with you. Okay. It's his understanding that he doesn't belong there. So we don't belong here either. So they took their, verse 20, so they took their journey from Succoth and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. So when the Israelites left Succoth, which is just outside of Ramses, they didn't go to the land of promise. They went to Etham, a town on the brink of disaster, a town on the edge of the wilderness. And as I said before, the word wilderness does not describe a land of pine trees, mountains and streams, rainbow trout and wildflowers. That'd be nice. We're going to go hunting in the wilderness. No, this is a bleak, brutal, blistering desert God was taking them into. This was not a nice place to be walking through with young kids and animals and all that kind of stuff. You brought us into the desert, Lord, with nothing before us. The Israelites must have cried. But the place is called Etham. Now what does Etham mean? It means with them. God is with them. So the lesson they're learning here, so the lesson they learned at Succoth was this tent town, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. As we go through this desert place, we learn that God is with us. I'm with you, the Lord declares. I know it looks like you're on the brink of disaster, like there's nothing good ahead, but I'm with you to see you through. How can the Lord teach us he is truly with us and that we need him and that he will be faithful to help us unless he takes us into the desert? When everything is fine, we go in a merry way as if his presence in our life is optional. It's only when we're on the brink of disaster, going through tough times, that we realize how much we need him. Verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way. So, how did the Lord lead his people? Well, hot desert, you know, burning hot. Imagine walking the desert sun day after day. You get really tired of that. And so what God does, he puts a cloud over them and provides comfort. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So why the fire at night? Or what happens in the desert at night time? It's freezing. So he gives them light, he gives them warmth during the night, and he gives them coolness and comfort during the day. But also, fire is a symbol of trials. Don't think it strange, Peter said, or Peter writes, concerning the fiery trials that come your way, First Peter 4.12. So how does God guide you? Not only with a cool, comfortable cloud, but sometimes through the fire of difficulty. Yet as Sadrach, Meshach and Abednego learned, the hotter the trial, the greater the liberty. Isn't that cool? When the three Hebrews were thrown into Belshazzar's fiery furnace, their skin didn't burn, their hair wasn't singed, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. The only physical effect of the fire 
was that the ropes which had once bound them were burned away. So on a practical level, she dumped me. He fired me. This is terrible, we cry. Wait, hold on, hang in there. You look back, but one day you'll see that in reality, you were actually set free. Because those things were holding you back. But when we go through those trials and we lose things, it's actually a freeing thing. You've been set free. And then, like the children of Israel, you've already gone to stop number three, where it gets even worse, but at the same time, even more wonderful. Before we go on to chapter 14, I just want to talk about God's leading. The leading of the Lord, um, verses 20 to 22, talking about the cloud and the fire. And how the Lord leads us, we can learn a lot from this principle. So they've left Egypt. They knew that there's this great destiny awaiting them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. The only question was, how would they know the way? How was God going to guide them day by day? And that's the question that we have today as Christians, isn't it? How is God going to guide us? How do we know what God's will is? I know I've been freed from Egypt, from the freed from the, the bondage of sin and the slavery to sin. And I'm headed for a great destiny that I'm going to heaven ultimately. But what do I do in the meantime? How will the Lord lead me practically or daily? And many people are in a fog about the way the Lord leads. But I think this passage really helps us to, it gives us three principles. I'll go through it. So the first one, is it cool? All right. So how do you think God led with the cloud? Did he put the cloud in front of the people and the people followed along? Or did he put the cloud on top of the people and the people went into the shade? Well, Psalm 105, 39, it says, we read that the cloud wasn't ahead of the congregation, but was above the congregation, a covering of the congregation. So when the Lord wanted the people to move, he moved the cloud. And because the people wanted to stay in the shade, they followed the cloud. This means that when God wanted his people to move, he got them to move in a very simple, practical way. So the daytime temperatures reaching like, you know, 50 degrees or more in the desert, God put a cloud over the entire congregation to shade them. And when he wanted them to move, he would simply move the cloud, knowing that people would move as well, just stay in the shade. All right? And that's the way the Lord still directs us. My burden is easy, my load is light, Jesus declared, Matthew 11.30. Now, This New Testament principle is also pictured in the Old Testament priesthood. If you look up Ezekiel, chapter 44, verse 17 and 18, Ezekiel, chapter 44, this is all about staying cool, okay? It's a principle we're looking at, staying cool. Ezekiel, chapter 44, verse 17 and 18. So Jesus said, my burden is easy, my load is light. The Christian life, if we're walking with the Lord, is easy because he is working through us. So Ezekiel forty four seventeen, And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. So, When you want to know what God's will is for you, the first thing you should do is ask, is it cool or is it wool? Will it cause inspiration 
or perspiration. All right? It says, uh, Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, if you delight in, love, and enjoy the Lord, he will give you that which your heart desires. And if we're doing what we want to do, then life's easy. It's only when we have to do something we don't want to do that life becomes difficult. I mean, I talk to the students and, you know, even training footy in the rain. If you love footy, well, then it's not hard. But if you don't love footy, then it's a real drag because you don't like getting wet and cold. But if your love for footy is greater than your discomfort, then you don't really care. So when we are following the Lord, his desires become our desires. And so that's why Jesus says, my burden is easy and my load is light. So how does this work? He's already written his will on the tablet of your heart, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, The desire of the heart and fellowship with him is his desire. Perhaps Augustine said it best when asked how to determine God's will, he answered, love God and do what you please. If you're putting God first and if his desires are in your heart, then just follow those desires. Here's a little story about some missionaries. A few years ago, I talked to some missionaries in the mountainous areas of Papua New Guinea where it rains 43 days a year and where toads spit poison so potent it burns through clothing. How can you do this? I asked in amazement. We love it, they answered. Come and see our bug collections. They love the bugs, the people, and even the weather because God fashioned them in such a way that they would fit into his divine design for them to share his word with the people of Papua New Guinea. So that was their ministry. That was their circumstances and God prepared them for that he gave them a love for bugs and if you didn't like bugs you wouldn't want to be in that place so it's been rightly said that there are lots of cheap imitations of priceless masterpieces and especially in our church today they say oh look at him look at her look at them I'm going to be just like him or just like them or just like her but when we try to imitate or duplicate someone else's calling or ministry the best we can be is only a cheap imitation You are a masterpiece because the master has pieced you together to do exactly what he tended you to do since before the world ever began, Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 2.10 says you are his workmanship, you're his poem. You are God's poetry. He has created you specifically and uniquely to do that which he knows will satisfy you most completely. So if we're doing something that's not a ministry, if we're trying to copy someone else or doing something that someone else has asked us to do, then it's not what we were designed for. It's not what God made us for. He has prepared works for us to walk in, good works. We need to walk in the works that he has prepared for us and not something else. Therefore, when you get to heaven, the Lord is not going to say, why weren't you more like Moses or why weren't you more like Abraham or why weren't you more like Paul or Billy Graham? No, he's going to say, why weren't you more like you? Why weren't you simply the person I made you to be? My masterpiece, my poetry. So don't strive, don't sweat. Be the person the Lord intended you to be, his unique masterpiece, something that no one else can imitate. That principle there was, is it cool?
if we're following the Lord, following his desires, then it's easy. If it's difficult and we're straining and struggling, it's probably not God's will. Now, the second principle is will it count? Now Jesus, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld him, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Acts 1.9 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all peoples of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 1.7 So Jesus came back in the clouds. So the cloud is it should cause us to not only consider what is cool, but what will count. You see, when we stand before him, we'll give an account of what we did with our time, talents and treasures. All that we did on earth will be tried by fire, and whatever remains will be our reward for eternity. Now, some people might think, ah, I'm not worried about rewards. But the rewards we're talking about here are very important. When we get there, we'll care. Put it that way. We want our rewards. It's not monetary rewards. It's rewards that determine our capacity to enjoy eternity, our function, our position in the kingdom. Now, Revelation 7.17 is a bit of a strange verse. It says, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So, why would there be tears in heaven? Well, here's my theory. Beam of seat judgment, we're all standing before God. And we have to give an account of everything. And there's the wood, hay and the stubble, which have got burnt away, and the precious stones and the jewels and the gold, etc., which remain. They're the things we do for the Lord. So, in that time, we will see how much of our life was wasted, how much time was wasted, how many opportunities were lost, the potential we took for granted. Okay, so the beam of seat judgment, the judgment of our works basically, it's not a judgment of our salvation. We're sinless because we're perfect in Christ, but we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. That reward will determine who we are and how much we enjoy and the way we function forever. And there's no hint in Scripture that. In heaven, we can compensate for that which we didn't do on earth. So when I'm deciding whether to watch TV or worship the Lord, to focus my energy on my car or on the kingdom, to pursue pleasure or to love people, if I'm aware of the cloud which speaks of his coming, I'll choose correctly every time. So think of the cloud as Jesus coming, and and the question is, does it count? When you're seeking the will of God, is this counting for eternity? Is this counting for the kingdom? And does it conform? All right. So Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking there with Moses and Elijah, and Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three booths, three tents, three monuments, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and camp out right here. And then, at that point, a cloud appeared with a voice thundering, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear my son. The father is saying. Matthew 17.5 So the cloud of the transfiguration reminds me that concerning any crossroad facing me, 
my decision must conform to the words and example that Jesus has given to us. And the writer to Hebrews clarifies this even further when he says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, heroes of the faith like Abraham, Moses, David, Noah, Jacob, and Gideon. You can go on. So if when you're struggling with a decision, I asked if you'd be interested in a personal appointment with Apostle Paul, you're struggling with a decision that you're not sure what to do, would you like to have an appointment with Apostle Paul? Would you like to ask him some questions? Would you like to have a time of worship with David? Would you like a question and answer session with Isaiah? Who would say no to that? Of course, you'd all jump for that, right? Guess what? You can. In the scriptures, we have the collective wisdom of all those people. So we have an unspeakable privilege because we can be counseled by 40 different authors, each inspired by the Spirit of God. So it's not just in the Gospel for Jesus, but we've got the entire Bible, and we can be counseled by all those people. They've left their mark through the Holy Spirit. So the three things were to following the will of the Lord. Is it cool? We don't want perspiration, we want inspiration. We want to be following what God's will is. It'll be His will and our will together, working with Him, not doing things on our own. Then will it count? Does it have eternal value? And then, does it conform to what the Word of God says? So those are the three main things in seeking the will of God. I'll just continue into chapter 14 a little bit more. Verse 1 and 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may turn and camp before Pi-Haroth, between Migdol and the sea, and opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. So that first one, Pi-Haroth, I can't get my mouth around that. Um, It literally means mouth of the gorges. And Migdol means tower. Therefore, it would seem that for stop number three, so the first was Sakoth, and the second was Ethan. So tent city, then I'm with you. And now we're here. We're stuck between a big mountainous cavern where troops might be hidden. It could be a military fortress of some kind. They've got their backs to the Red Sea and Canyon on the other side. It's like Moses' advisors might have said, hmm, this is not strategically wise. If the Egyptians change their minds and pursue us, we'd be sitting ducks. Not a good idea. But that's where the Lord led them. And God actually tells Moses why he led them there. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So surely the Egyptians knew that the true and living God was the Lord of all. With the frogs and flies and all the blood, the boils, the hail, the lice, the death of the firstborn hadn't convinced them what well, it had. But they still had one ace up their sleeve. They're awesome, legendary, and what they thought was an invincible army. And so they needed to see God's preeminence over their military power because they thought 
in their mind, their military power could overcome God, and so God was going to deal with this. Verse 5, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. So he's lost his forced labor. He's lost his workforce, so he wants to get it back. Who's going to build bricks now? And he took 600 choice chariots, or chosen chariots. In other words, these chariots were the most sophisticated weapons of the day. The Egyptians, I believe, invented the chariot. And basically it's like the USA, you know, leaving their enemies in the dust technologically. You know, Maybe not so much these days, but in the past they did. And uh, all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So they're being pursued, but the children of Israel are going out with boldness. So, or with a high hand, they're going out rejoicing, celebrating, you know, giving each other high fives. Imagine the picture here, you know. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. Hmm, how far did they lift their eyes? Well, only to see the problem. They didn't lift their eyes high enough to see the protector, Jesus himself. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So it's not just the horses, it's the foot soldiers as well. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? So they've gone from this bold, you know, high-fiving, rejoicing, singing, worshipping. As soon as there's a problem, they're very afraid. Okay, where's their faith? They've just been through 10 plagues. They've seen God's power. And they said, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Well, think about that statement. In the Egyptian culture, there were tombs and graves everywhere. They high priority to the afterlife. They pyramids and mummification. And for the Israelites to say there were no graves in Egypt was stupid. Well, it's nonsense. And it's just amazing how we can lose our perspective when we start to doubt, whether we stray from what God says. And we fail to trust him. Wearsby says, this is a pretty cool statement, unbelief has a way of erasing from our memory all the demonstrations we've seen of God's great power and all the instances we know of God's faithfulness to his word. I'll read that again. Unbelief has a way of erasing from our memory all the demonstrations we've seen of God's great power and all the instances we know of God's faithfulness to his word. So when we have unbelief, we forget. And it's amazing how very quickly the Israelites forgot God's very recent demonstrations of power and protection. So if we're going to stand strong, we need to remember who God is and what he's done for us. And they said to Moses, Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Now, here's just a, a thought that I'm throwing in. It doesn't really fit with anything else, but I'm going to say it anyway. <clears throat> it's a quote from Wearsby again. How foolish it would have been for the Jews to pause in their march and take a vote 
to see which route they should take to Mount Sinai. Now, there's a place for community council and referendum, Acts 6, 1-7, as an example. But when God has spoken, there's no need for consultation. And on more than one occasion in Scripture, the majority has been wrong. So, like David and the elders, you know, getting together and deciding to bring the ark into the city in Jerusalem by a cart with the oxen, as an example. And they all got together and they all agreed. Yes, a great idea, but it was wrong. The majority can be wrong. So, why did the Lord lead his people out to only seemingly box them in? Now, there's three reasons, and we're going to cover those reasons next week. So, stay tuned. We're going to look at the three reasons why God brought them to the third place and put them in a place where they were just, from a human perspective, we're just going to be mincemeat. Okay? So, we just pray and... Um, I pray that you'll just read these um, chapters during the week and just see what God speaks to you out of this. Father, thank you that you are a good God, Lord, that you are faithful. And Lord, we're seeing the children of Israel really, really joyous and, and um, bold and high-fiving and you know dancing and singing and celebrating. And, and then as soon as something happens, which is a little bit scary, they lose their faith and they're very afraid. They go from being very rejoicing to being very afraid. Lord, help us not to be like that. Help us to be stable. Help us not to be blown to and fro. But Lord, help us to be strong in our faith. And Lord, not just to rejoice when times are good, but also to rejoice when times are hard and when times are difficult and we can't see or we don't understand why things might be happening. So we just pray for your provision and your protection for us, Lord. And we pray that you help us to put into practice what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen.